Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Angela Savage in conversation with Christos Jolkas, talking about his new novel, Seven and a Half. This is an audacious novel by the acclaimed author of The Slap and Damascus, one about finding joy and beauty in a raging and punitive world, about the refractions of memory and time, and the mystery of art and its creation. Before we start, a quick reminder, as this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. I want us all to take a little moment to feel so fortunate. And with that gratitude, you're also acknowledging that wherever you are in Australia, that you're actually living on land that's not yours, on land that's not being ceded. So it is my job, of course, to say, hey, let's do an acknowledgement of country. Let's send our respects to the elders. But I reckon in 2021, that's simply not good enough. It's not good enough just to acknowledge that we're living on land that's not ours. It's not good enough just to acknowledge that we send our respects to the elders. We've got to do more, people. So what I want from all of you is a commitment that sometime this year you're going to find a story or a song line that's written and created by the First Nations people and you're going to read it and take it into your heart so that you better understand this beautiful country that we live on. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation, and of course, I'm sending my respects to the First Nations people, but I'm also sending my immense gratitude. And now, Angela Savage, someone who has been talking about writing, who has lived writing, who is in fact an author, but actually has made her life more than just writing word and stories, has made it her life's goal to support so many of our authors in this beautiful country. Let's make Angela very welcome. Over to you. Thank you, Chris, for that absolutely beautiful introduction. And good evening, everyone. It's funny, we were just talking earlier about, you know, normally the way we'd go about something like this, if it was formal, would be I would read your bio. But everyone in the room knows you. And rather than read your bio, I thought I'd ask you, what is it in your bio that you're most proud of? That I've been a uh, supporter of the Richmond Football Club <laughs> for decades. <laughs> I am proud of that. Actually, I am proud of that. But uh, it's a hard question uh, because I'm not someone who necessarily goes back to my, my work. Uh, but in, so I'm going to have to uh, answer that by thinking about the labour involved in in the work, and I think the the novel that taught me something about the craft of writing and how you need discipline and and, and hard work uh, was a novel called Dead Europe, and, um, uh, which may not be a completely successful novel, but it is a novel I am really proud of, and in, in that similar way, I feel. I feel a great 
gratitude to uh, the last novel, Damascus, too, because that was that that, mm. that taught me something about the craft and the, and the labour of writing. And of course, you always love the new child, <laughs> <laughs> so, the yeah. youngest. That's right. Yeah. You yeah. love them from the bottom up. This so I love the baby. I love yeah. seven and a half. That was that beautiful line in in um, the Poisonwood Bible where she says, "You love them from the bottom up," which that's, I think is just yeah. so gorgeous. Um, okay, so it's two years since Damascus. And now we have seven and a half. That is record time for you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, what happened? Um, it was five. What, Damascus was five years in the making, if I'm not yes. mistaken. So how did how did a novel like this happen for you so quickly? It happened um, in a way. It began as an exercise. Uh, I was working. I, I, I've, I've discovered that this is really important. That just as a novel. As, as a work comes out, um, to begin something new. Um, it's almost like a doing exercises that I, that, that I set myself. Uh, I'd been working on something called resentment, which was trying to be a novel of the time, to so try and deal with the political questions of the time. And Angie, was, it was going nowhere. I felt, it felt dead on the page. I, I was doing the work. I was getting up every day and, and writing it, but I knew it had no life in it. And then... Um, Wayne and I had, were in the UK. It was Mar- uh, March the 10th that we landed and then we were um, had hired a car in Glasgow and we were going to spend a month, five weeks, uh, celebrating our 35th anniversary and travelling through the UK and Ireland. And that first uh, night in London, we're meeting up with friends and we're hugging and we're kissing and we're embracing and within a week... Everything starts locking down. Everything starts being really frightening. And we were really fortunate that we could get a flight out because we booked with a travel agent. We'll never book for myself again. <laughs> that was a real that was a real lesson about something about the gig economy. That, that um, and I, that I'm really sad that the person who we booked it from has lost their job. Uh, and then on the sec- uh, we're the second morning of quarantine and again we were lucky we could quarantine from home at that point I woke up and started writing this book and part of it was uh, an exercise to keep writing and part of it was to try and work out what I why am I writing all those questions that all of us who are writers at the moment are asking ourselves what does it mean to write what voice do I write in what is the point of fiction is there a point of fiction you know I, I discovered in writing this book that yes I do believe I'm really glad I'm a fiction writer. But that's 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 how this book happened. And it was I set myself uh, a task that I would write at least 800 words a day, first thing in the morning. And the, the novel progressed joyously. That's that's mm. the word. I just found that where I was being it was like walking through quicksand with, or, or really sludge with the with resentment that that other novel I've started and which I've put aside. This felt like it was flying off the page. And the, the title for people to to understand is a homage to one of my favourite films, Federico Fellini's Eight and a Half, which is about a filmmaker. Uh, I played my Marcello Mastroianni, but very much based on Fellini, who is trying to work out. Why is he a filmmaker? What film does he, what what film can he make 
what film can he make to talk about the world he's in? And so it just felt right. I, I kind of had the title. That, that, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. interesting. Well, it's funny because that I remember asking you at one point, why is it called Seven and a Half? And and you do name check Eight and a Half in the in the book. Um, and then I was thinking, so why do you call it Seven and a Half? Why not Nine and a Half? And then I'm thinking, oh no, that terrible Mickey Rourke film. <laughs> Any confusion happening there? That wasn't. <laughs> so I mean, that's an unusual practice for you, and particularly. Like it's it's so vastly different from Damascus, and Damascus had so, it was such a research intensive book. I remember you said you didn't write for a year; you just that's read. Right, and that's true for a year. So with seven and a half, you set yourself an eight hundred word a day goal. You're killing it. You're knocking it out of the park. But you, I've heard you say too in the past that it's when you when you hit on the structure that the novel flows. But did you have that structure? from the get-go or, or was it a different kind of experience? It was really a much more playful experience than um, any of the novels uh, preceding preceding it. And really probably the last time I have played like that is my first novel, Loaded. That's really interesting because I remember I said to you, I want to come back to Loaded mm-hmm. because I think that Seven and a Half speaks to Loaded in a really interesting way. Oh, look, the, the, the only thing I'll say about it, and um, I, I hope that when, when people read it that this is a book that is a love, it's a lot of things for me, but one of the things it is is a love letter to, to literature and to writing, but it's also a love letter to art and it's a love letter to cinema. And it was, uh, I've been really, uh, one of the great blessings, and I'll, I'll use that word, uh, over the last decade has been the discipline of writing film reviews, um, which, you know, I'm a, I'm, I write reviews for largely for the, the Saturday paper. I love doing it, but the discipline of actually doing that kind of writing and thinking about how film and a medium works and actually having to really uh, try and understand the practice, I, I, I think that had given me a way of approaching seven and a half when it came to what does it mean to write. Mm, you know? mm. Um, I think it's also a love letter to your partner too. Ah, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I really, I was really struck by that reading, reading the book and reading. I, said, I mentioned to you that I read the ending again this morning, and I got quite teary. And um, because it is, it's 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 an incredible love letter, and I'm, I'm going to pick up on that, as I said. But um, I wanted to ask you because I think, well, one of the things that happened for me is that I read the book when it was in manuscript form, yes. fairly not very early, early yeah. but not. Mega early, because obviously you don't show those drafts to anyone. I do actually show them to Wayne. That that's really that's the book is dedicated to 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 Wayne, who has been my partner for a long time now, and he's he's a remarkable reader. Uh, that he and not a piss in your pocket kind of reader. Yeah. He will tell me that um, if it's not working. And I had at, at, so it started seven and a half, and I had about maybe. 25,000 words, maybe less. I, I really can't remember. And it was this uh, blessed moment uh, in between lockdowns and we'd gone away and he read Resentment, which was this other novel I was working uh, on, and he read Seven and a Half, uh, that, that, that very, very early start on it, and he just went, Chris, this is the one. This is the one. And this I, is where you want to put And I energy. trusted, I really trust that response. I really trust his, uh, his reading. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so 
Okay. And I knew it. You know, yeah, you, you know what I mean. You feel it in your gut when, yeah. you know. I, I, I was getting up every morning and it was a joy to come to this book, whereas when I was working on resentment, it just felt like... <laughs> the appropriately named <laughs> resentment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so just for those who haven't read Seven and a Half yet, it's it's a metafiction, I think it's fair to say. So it's 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 a story about a writer whose name is Christos um, writing about art and writing about uh, love and also trying to write another book, which is about Paul Carrigan. Do you want to just brief the audience, for those who haven't read it yet, on what that story within the story is? So there is a story, yes. So it's about the writer Christos who's gone away and he's decided, you know, wondering what he writes and partly he, he wonders if he should write a memoir and he you know, it goes back to his really early childhood. But there's a story that he's been wanting to tell for years, for over 10 years, and it's called Sweet Thing, which is uh, a title of a Van Morrison song that I adore. And it's about uh, a porn actor uh, who worked in gay porn in the 90s who has left the industry with his wife, Jenna, and she too was a, a porn actor, and they are living on the north coast of New South Wales They've got a a 19-year-old son and they get an an astonishing offer of money for him to go back to America, to the US. He hasn't been for a long time and and he decides to to take up that offer. And sweet thing is I have dreamt about being a filmmaker from the earliest points. This is I've got to thank my mum for the love of cinema. Uh, She she loves the movies and she, she... and we would go every Saturday night to usually a national, which is for Melbourne um, uh, people, you, you will know it on, on Bridge Road, where they used to play Greek movies. And we would always see uh, two movies on a Saturday night and she would also take me to the cinema one other night. Uh, and she just, and, we would, and I, I've got exercise books that my mum and dad had kept for years where I've been dreaming you know, doing when doing my films. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, I had done their shots, and and then I realized, and so I, this was an idea of of doing this film and actually using an uh, an actor called Paul, Paul Carrigan, uh, who I become a bit obsessed with, and. So he's a real person. He's a real yes. He's a he's a real actor, and you know my. I think pornography is one of those, you know, another thing that Seven and a Half is for me is a book about the erotic, right, and how important the erotic yeah. has been, how it has taught me liberation and it's also taught me about danger. Well, you actually say, quote, unquote, all writing, all true writing begins from the erotic. That's, and I do, I, that, that's my earliest stirrings are the erotic. Uh, I have been troubled. My I might add, this won't surprise any of the students <laughs> out there. <laughs> I've, I've, no, actually, that's true. <laughs> I've been confused and troubled by my relationship to pornography for a long time. Uh, uh, there's in, in my in a collection of short stories called Merciless Gods. There's a suite of three stories, and there's some of the earliest short stories I've, I've written. Uh, it was my way of trying to grapple with what does it mean to consume pornography? What does it mean to use these bodies? How do we give a humanity back to those images? Um, and and I, I I had wanted to make this film sweet thing, and I wanted to use the actual Paul Carrigan as the actor to 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 
um, uh, to see if this film was possible. And I developed it as a screenplay. I gave it to some people. They said this will never get made. <laughs> uh, I, I, I worked on it as a script. I worked on it as a play. I worked on it as a straightforward novel and it always seemed to go nowhere. And I realised maybe around the same time that I became, you know, a full-time, well, you know, as a film reviewer for the paper that I don't have that set of skills. And I use, there's so many important skills that you need as a director, but there's almost like a martial set of skills you need, and I don't have them. My, that's, uh, I realise that I'm, I'm a novelist and a storyteller, I'm, I'm doing it in words. Uh, and it felt like maybe I had to give up the, um, the idea of, of sweet thing. And then uh, uh, I was talking with a friend uh, a few years ago and I was telling, telling him about this and he said, well, if you haven't written it, if it hasn't, it hasn't been accomplished in 10 years, then the, the, the idea is no, is no good. You've got to leave it behind. And I realised that I hadn't left it behind, that I, that, that, that I, I wanted to go back and, and give that story its place. And seven and a half feels to me that the right place is because there's another myth, if you like, that, 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 and another film that I quote in the book, and that's Jean Cocteau's beautiful work, Orpheus, which is a modern retelling of the Orpheus myth. And in Orpheus, you descend into the underworld. Um, and very much for Cocteau, it is in the underworld where some of the inspiration comes for mm. what we do mm. as writers, what mm. we do as artists. And it was kind of an, an illumination Rewatching Orpheus and thinking, sweet thing will be the way I do the descent into Hades in in seven and a half. Yeah, right. And and that descent into Hades also means for me a descent into the most problematic and difficult and contentious and arousing aspects of the pornographic and the erotic. Mm. It's it's so interesting. I mean, I said to you, I, you know, I read I read the book in manuscript form. Um, and I struggled with it really on the first reading. Not that I, not that I struggled with the writing or anything, but I struggled with the narrative voice. And then I read it, you know, again recently, and I just loved it. I just didn't have the same struggle at all. And I, it made me think of, of I was saying this to you that Kate Kennedy um, recently wrote her PhD exegesis on kind of um, epistolary novels, fake diaries, basically. You know, take a step back. John Gardner's famous, you know, what the fiction writer wants to achieve is that vivid and continuous dream. So where the reader forgets that they're reading, they're just yes. so immersed in the story, right? That's our goal. That's our, they're our favourite books, right? Yes. The ones where we miss our tram stops, right? <laughs> and Kate suggests that when the distinction between the real narrator and the artfully created fictional narrator is blurred, readers are likely to find that immersion impeded by suspicions that the author and narrator are the same I, or in this case, the same Christos. And I just wondered whether that was something you were conscious of when you were writing it. And, and also, like, so it's not a memoir, but it is autofiction. How did you, were you kind of conscious of that when you were writing it? How did you kind of navigate that? 
Did you have concerns about? Oh, you have concerns about every time you buy yeah. land. You know that. I know. Uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> people don't believe in it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> uh, and I think the um, uh, I described it before. You know, and it is really true that it was really uh, a really pleasurable experience immersing myself in the writing of it, and I hope that comes through. But really, the restructure, the edit was about trying to make the reader come along in a voice that is Christos, but I think I say clearly enough in the text, don't trust us writers. (laughs) There is, yes, there's an element. For me, the way I was invisible when I was writing it was I'm going to do the reverse of what usually happens in my fiction, which is, you know, people asking how much autobiography is in the fiction. The question now is how much fiction is in the autobiography Mm. and I was very conscious of wanting to play with that. Uh, There was a a question I had of do I give, you know, uh, Wayne's name isn't Wayne in the the book, it's Simon. There are are these small clues. And I think you talk once or twice about certain people in the story being amalgams of of people from your life and... It felt like the of of why I didn't you know why did I not call myself Nick or didn't call myself um, Bubble or you know uh, or Angela right <laughs> what, what what was and it was because it seemed to me in the in the moment of writing that we are in the question of I, I actually wanted a little bit I wanted to be a little bit. Oh God! How do I say this without sounding like a wanker? <laughs> I, I wanted to be a little bit. I wanted to be fearless. You can't be a little bit fearless. I wanted to go. People are going to um, have to trust this work um, and trust that I am trying to get to something important about why we write and why how difficult the question of writing is and how difficult the question of fiction is at this at this present moment. Um, and it felt like the only. True way of doing that was to be Christos in the in in the book. Uh, you know, the, it's interesting all those terms, and and trust me, you know this, right? You, you know, I uh, working on Damascus rekindled my love of philosophy and reading that kind of dense, difficult work. But I, I always remember I owe a great debt to explain to to people that when I was a young writer uh, I had a mentor called Sasha Sadarov and we did a, a book called Jump Cuts together an autobiography that was mm. a tease as well mm. and I remember Sasha saying it took me ten years to get rid of the university of the mm. academic and so don't I'm not being anti-academic when I say that I wasn't thinking of metafiction. Yeah, I, yeah, wasn't, yeah, I yeah. wasn't thinking about that kind of language in writing Seven and a Half. I'm laughing because we've talked about, you know, postmodernism and, yeah. and how kind of devastating it was to be at university when it was at its height yes. and kind of how thwarting it was in many respects. Of creativity. That was a, the, and, and, and we've talked about that too, and I always remember Sasha's voice there, and, and I think he was right. I had to kind of work really hard to get rid of that kind of language and that kind of authorial voice because it wasn't, one, it isn't the kind of writing that I most enjoy as a reader of fiction, right? I, uh, but it is, uh, it's also not my temperament. It's not my, uh, there is something else I wanted to do, and I'd say this a lot and I think it's really true. Every book 
The book you just wrote, so Seven and a Half, is shadowed by the book that came before it. And Damascus, and again, it's up to you readers whether it's succeeded or failed or somewhere, whatever, but what, what I learned from Damascus is that I do have a real yearning for the sacred. Mm. Uh, I have heaps of doubt, and I think doubt is the other thing that I learned through writing Damascus, how absolutely crucial it is and uh, that I, I worry that there is uh, a suspicion of doubt yeah. and nuance yeah. in our world at the moment. Yeah. But, you know, there, there is ugliness. In well, I think it was going picking up on that yeah. point about the importance of the sacred for you. You know, we, one of, there's that line in Jump Cuts where you say, I miss God. Yeah. You know, and, and it's and that just, you know, that just resonated so strongly with me because, because there's all the reasons why we we do turn away from ideology and religion, but there's a there's a grief that goes with it because of what we lose in that process. And it's interesting that you in Jenner and Paul's story, that, that tension gets told a lot because Paul is a non-believer and Jenner is a believer. And there are times Paul has a sense of the sacred in his life, but and there are times when he really grieves that he doesn't have Jenna's faith. And so it's interesting that, you know, people will read Christos, the author, the narrator in this book as, as the autobiographical part of the story, but there's you in, in, in a single course, character. Of course. And, and your, your, the things you grapple with are in so many of the, so much of the dialogue yeah. in the book. And look, and, and that, so to me, that sometimes that question of, you know, autobiography, we are all in the work. There is the importance of the craft of storytelling, and that, and you you gave me this lesson really ages because um uh, I remember talking to you about well you know one of my dreams is to one day if I can I don't think I'm you know maybe a bit like being a filmmaker it's not going to be one of the things that I will do is write a really good crime novel <laughs> yeah that's right and then I I remember talking to you and going oh Ange how do you you know how do you how do you know that you're getting procedures right? How you and you just went, Christos, use your fucking imagination. <laughs> I, and I do. I'm sure I didn't say fucking. So language warning. And that was a great. That, I don't know if you remember that conversation. Oh, and I, I thought, and I thought, yes. There is the work of writing. There is the work of thinking, uh, and there is something called the imagination. So this book is a lot about writing. It's about the beauty of writing and it's beautiful writing too. You know, I think for readers, <laughs> readers are going to really take enormous pleasure as I did from the from the depictions of landscape. And I know the place, the, the places on the south coast that you're writing about and I was just transported there and it was such a pleasure to read. But you have this incredibly confronting part of the story where Christos, the narrator, meets up with a friend called Andrea on the coast, and he says, you know, I'm I'm turning my back on ideology. I'm over capital P politics and capital E ethics. I want to write about beauty. And she's really like, she's she's like, can I read this a little bit? Yeah, because yeah, it's, of it's really you can do it's you very, like. very confronting, I thought. She says he doesn't have the talent to write about beauty and says, you have a particular skill to take the contemporary world and create characters that articulate the thoughts and fears we don't dare speak aloud. That's the most powerful aspect of your writing, that emotional and unrepentant honesty. It's truly exhilarating 
And even though you've been doing it for years, that rawness doesn't feel diluted. She now turns to me, her cold black eyes are still cold. But that rawness is also your greatest weakness. You're shit at metaphor and there's nothing elegaic in your sentences and in your rhythms. Reflect the world back at us, Crystal. That's your talent. Leave beauty to the poets. And I was like, okay, so is that your inner voice or what? That is definitely. <laughs> it's, it's strange too um, because we're sitting at this table which is in um, our kitchen and I remember, you know, just you reading it. I remember I'm sitting across the table there. It's 7 o'clock in the morning and I'm, I'm writing that section. And that is that is the, the self-doubt. That is the lacerating self-doubt that you, we all face. Uh, and that, would, that, that, that moment is pivotal for me in the book because it was like I was, I was trying to be really honest and, and lay the dare out. To, yeah, to the and reader. that's how it comes across. It's it's such a um, and I wonder, like a breathtaking moment of of far out. Like I can't imagine a critic being as harsh as you've just been on yourself. The truth is that no critic is uh, you 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 know. I'm, I'm speaking to a fellow writer, and every anyone who's a writer who's listening to this knows that. In in that sense, there's no critic that can be harsh as your inner critic. And I think that's probably that that has to be true. Otherwise, we'll just become sated, and 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 we won't. We'll forget about what it is that that drives us to do hopefully good. good well, work. I actually love the way you resolved this in the book too, because it was this incredible moment of resonance where Crystal, the narrator, kind of walks off that that horrible eviscerating moment. Um, and instead of dwelling on the argument, goes, no, no, I'll just focus on my characters. And it's like, yes, that's exactly what you do as a writer. It's like when reality gets too hard, you just, and so it's, it's, it's this kind of incredible um, tightrope act because on the one hand it's, it's terrifying to go out, to, to, to kind of take that leap of faith, and yet it's also that's where your escape is in a way. That's, so it, it, it's, it's, it's this constant balancing act between that critical voice in your head and that joyous, as you say, that joyous experience of creation, that they sort of they sort of do block each other out eventually. I mean, when, in, yeah. when they're in the different spaces, I think. I was just thinking when you were, you were talking about that, Ange, that I think uh, I, I don't want to give a sense that seven and a half somehow just went, Moo, you know, that it, it, there, there was, uh, you know, there, there was that I knew that I wanted to to do particular things. With this novel, I knew that I wanted to integrate the uh, the, the the sweet thing uh, story within the embedded within the book. And, but there was an element where, and maybe it was the pause of the pandemic. But because, you know, not that I think it's a you know a COVID book. It's not, but that not I, at all actually. But I think that I found this space where I could actually just think about what it is that I do as a writer, uh, uh, think through early stories, return to some of those books that I loved when I was really young. Uh, and it's, it's, it's quite astonishing to reread something that moved you terribly when you were a young person and then read it as a 55-year-old man and think, oh, what am I responding to yeah, now? Yeah, so, yeah. And, and that element of what is it 
to be a writer? How is it to tell stories? I, I hope, because that, that, was, that was a surprise to me in, in writing it, so I hope it feels surprising to read. Absolutely, and I, I wanted to pick up too on that development that takes place or the change that takes place between youth and, and middle age, as we call ourselves now, I guess, um, uh, and... I'm happy to be Grandpa Simpson. (laughs) I'm not calling myself that. One of my nieces calls me Grandpa Simpson. (laughs) I'm resisting constant, you know, middle age, middle age, not old woman. Um, But uh, I wanted to pick this up, this up because you do reflect a lot on you. You know, as you said earlier, you you've got some beautiful um, memoir pieces, reflections on childhood moments. Some stories of which I've heard. and also kind of reflecting back. There's this real strong sense of, of Christos, the narrator, the writer, reflecting back. And at one stage you write of Christos that your furious anger of the past has begun to ebb in your 40s and, quote, I no longer desired to be at war over my sexuality and I had long abandoned the Manichian simplifications of progressive politics. And it made me reflect. That was the passage that made me reflect on how Seven and a Half speaks to your debut novel, Loaded, because that was also a novel in which readers questioned the relationship between Ari, the narrator, and Christos, the writer. Um, but where Ari is angry and at war with his sexuality, Christos, who's narrating Seven and a Half, is at peace with his sexuality. It's a beautiful thing as your friend. It was really beautiful. And I think the difference is love. Yes. Uh, certainly, uh, certainly that... Um, the the constancy of love in my life has, and I'm touching just as I say, it has been phenomenal, really. And that is that is Wayne. There is another love that is etched in the in the novel, and that is the young the narrator's family, like his 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 mother and his father, and also. And, you know, there's a lot of cultures, including a lot of First Nations cultures have this. I grew up in a world where because my parents were separated from from where they came from, you know, every adult was auntie, every adult was uncle. And I was given love. And and the novel, in a way, is, is for me paying a respect to that love. I think... The young writer I was when I was doing Loaded knew that, but he didn't know it. He was too raw. He was too angry. Yeah. He, the anger and the kind of the, what seemed to me at that time, the overwhelming difficulty of homophobia had made me, uh, I just, that, that seemed to be the primal, the most important thing in my imagination. Uh, there is a sense, and this is partly getting older, but it's also a sense that I've had for a long time in my working life that I have an enormous debt to the struggles and the sacrifices and the lives my parents led in being able to give myself. And my brothers, I, I think, here tonight, and John's a wonderful man, uh, the opportunities that he and I have been given because of that struggle and that sacrifice, are what enable us to do the work we're doing. Amazing opportunities. 
Class is a really class. I think is throughout seven and a half, and the way that I think is throughout all my work. But it's and you know, it's for a long time I haven't been able to use the the term working class about myself because I'm no longer that. But that is the world I came from, and I feel like it would be completely disingenuous and it would be a lie to pretend that any of my struggles are equal to what my my mother and my father have experienced. And that doesn't negate or or mean that I'm not conscious of how important it is for young people and everyone in the struggles now, but I'm, I'm saying... That's an important lesson to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I can, uh, and that, of course, is going to mediate the kind of relationship I have to something called politics, mm-hmm. and and how I write about politics, how I write about culture, uh, and and I'm really glad for that. Ah, oh, man, I'm really really glad that I've had that 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 love and been taught that that lesson. I'm smiling because it's at this point at the bar that we go and we get another round of drinks and we start a really vehement conversation um, about contemporary politics, which we're not going to do tonight or just yet. Um, <laughs> um, I did want to ask you, though, about there's just there's so many beautiful passages in this book. Like I just I'm marking it up the whole time and, you know, as a, as a text about writing, as a text about craft, as a text about the the act of creation there's just it, it's rich it's so rich um for those who haven't read it yet you're just going to love it and I strongly suspect you'll end up doing the same there was a line that leapt out at me because we've talked about this as well um and that line is every writer of fiction is selfish it's one of the first choices we make when we submit to the claims of our vocation and I remember for a long time you you struggled with that with reconciling your vocation as a writer and the selfishness, the selfish necessity with politics. This is you moved here, I think. Yeah, I've realised that um, you know uh, I got taught that really early on in politics by by wonderful people. I had really you know um, I was quite young when I first uh, joined you know uh, activist groups. <laughs> I remember. I remember this wonderful woman, Leslie, going, oh, Christos, you're too much of a hedonist to be a good activist, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is true. But also the, you know, the, the, that sense of wanting to be a storyteller meant that uh, look, my, my struggles with what is politics has been, uh, has been ongoing and I, think, I, I don't think I'm ever going to lay the... I'm always going to come back to that struggle, uh, but we're still going to be talking about it in our seventies. Of aren't course, we? of course. Yeah. But that element, that question of doubt, is what also what I think makes me a not very good activist. But makes so where it's useful is to bring it into writing uh, and to open up that space because doubt. In activism, and you know, you, you know, you yeah, know, you know yeah. this, Angela. You, you, you know, with all you the have to be evangelical. Yes, you yeah. have, and I'm not an evangelical. No, but the people who understand, and this is interesting. I've just glanced at the chat, and I can see there's some really interesting questions here. Um, one of them from Deborah is: Is it possible to meaningfully affect change if you are not angry? And I think, I don't know about you, but 
just what you said then about activism and needing that evangelical, it, it's also understanding the role you play in that ecosystem of change, that you may not have the evangelism to be that activist, but a really good, and I, I've had this wonderful dynamic with people I've worked with before, who recognise that what I can offer is not that, yes. but I respect what they can offer, and because there's a mutual respect there, we can play to each other's strengths. Is that also something you're conscious of as a writer, of kind of contributing to that ecosystem, I guess, of political political change? Uh, I'm I'm thinking of that and also Deborah's question, which is is a good one. Uh, It's not like I'm not angry. (laughs) You know, look at the Prime Minister. I can imagine that. (laughs) I mean, mean, of course, of course, of course, but I I am suspicious of the evangelical impulse in in religion and in politics. I, I, I do stand in a, in a peculiar position to it, I think. Uh, the, you know, I, I wince at calling myself an outsider. I'm so not an outsider, right? But, but I do share, that, that's one of the things that first drew me to fiction. That's one of the first things that drew me to cinema, to, 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 to works that talked about um, what has been hidden, what has been denied, what has been uh, uh, lied about silenced, and what yeah. has been silenced, of yeah. course. Uh, and of course, that's really, uh, I mean, that's that's why I didn't want to be afraid of pornography, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this. Oh, like, poverty too. I mean, that there is a heartbreaking part of this book. When I was reading it the second time, I was kind of approaching it with dread because it is, it is so heartbreaking when Paul goes, and we're not going to give away too much, but when Paul goes back to small town US to see his brother, and it's, it's yeah, it's devastating. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. But. No, uh, look, uh, you know, because you're such a great friend and, you know, there are conversations that I have sometimes when you're not there that, that, that you, and, you know, the last, the last trip overseas I did, and I hope it's connected there, you know, that it, it makes sense why I'm bringing it up now, I had gone, I brought, I took mum to, to, to Greece and it had been a long, long time since she'd been there and had a, a wonderful time, but I was angry because of what had been happening in that country uh, with the financial crisis and kind of just just suffering mm. and, and poverty that a lot of not family were experiencing. And then I met up with uh, Wayne and my brother and we were travelling through Eastern Europe and that was... And I hadn't been there for a long time. Indeed, Europe came out of my my travels in Eastern Europe. And we were in Budapest and we had just gone to a museum of communist history. Um, and you know, yeah, yeah, and yeah. you know it. And I I was going out that night, dinner with Wayne, and I was just shaking because I think as a person who dares to call themselves progressive or left wing, I have to acknowledge the ugliness of that history and the violence of that history. And it shits me. It, actually, I do get angry at this and then I have to pull back and go, it's un- I'm being unfair. But sometimes I think a lot of progressive voices seem to be completely ignorant or de- in denial about that history. That, yeah. that isn't new. That isn't something that came out of uh, this work. That had, and you yeah. know, you've known me for a long time. You know that that battle is has been ongoing yeah. for decades now. Yeah. And... And that is where I am a little bit heretical uh, when it comes to anger. Mm. Uh, I understand it and I mine it and I think about it, but I also have great doubts about that rage 
because it, you know. Well, you've seen what lack of doubt does. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. And that was on, like, on, on all sides yeah. of politics. And, you, yeah. you know, you've worked in Laos. You've worked in Vietnam. You've worked in, in, in Cambodia. You've also seen what they, that lack of doubt. Oh, yeah. Creates. Oh, yeah. Let's not go there. Um, <laughs> there's a few people asking, how did you come to be inspired by Sokesi's Kusamakura? Oh, uh, that good question because I love uh, I love that novel, late 19th century Japanese novel. Uh, it was uh, one of the great delights of my, my the last 10 years of my life has been uh, falling, falling in love, actually falling in love with uh, Japanese writing. I, I'd had, uh, I'd fallen for the cinema that had come, that, that came out there, you know, in, in my 20s and 30s, uh, 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 you know, and, and still, like, Koreeda is for me one of the, 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 the supreme artists in contemporary cinema. Uh, but I hadn't really read Japanese literature and, you know, you know, I, I'm conscious I don't read Japanese, of course, and so I'm doing it in translation. So I try really hard to get good translations. And a, a wonderful friend who translated the slap in Japanese, Kaji, a, a wonderful man, took me by the hand, literally took me by the hand, and said, these are some of the books mm. uh, you should read. Gave me, gave me Tanizaki's work uh, and and gave me uh, Sosiko's book. And it's it's... A book that is a defence of writing and fiction. So it made that, that it has a particular place physically in Seven and a Half, but in a way, the same way that Fellini's film is uh, a guide. You know, I'm talking about the um, with the the going into the underworld. Mm-hmm. So so was that that novel. Mm-hmm. And I've loved what I've learned from Japanese literature, the the possibilities of of simplicity when it comes to um, speaking of the sublime. I love that. There's a question here from Declan about what does disappointment mean to you and how do you view concepts like resentment or disappointment in their relationship to freedom? Are they energising, limiting or something else? Uh, I mean, that's, I wish we were in a bar, Declan, where we could sit down because <laughs> uh, whatever I'm going to say is going to be simplistic. So I'll try and think... I think disappointment is crucial for me and energising in terms of a relationship to freedom. Um, that may sound paradoxical. I don't mean it. I think that every disappointment that I've had in terms of the limitation of ideology and the limitation of certain faiths has has been, no matter how difficult the actual moment of living that disappointment is, it has taught me something. I distrust resentment. Uh, I distrust resentment and envy. I'm, not, I'm human. I, I experience those things. I think the relationship between resentment and envy is really poisonous uh, and all of us who are writers and artists have to be really conscious yeah. of, 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 Ooh, yeah. of, of, yeah, of, of that. Yeah. So, it, it, you know, uh, it, it's a much larger conversation and a much like, larger argument, but I would say that the opposite, resentment, leads to a, a, a foreclosing of possibilities mm. and disappointment to me has been about an opening possibility. I have this kind of slightly tongue-in-cheek question for you. Is Sweet Thing a failed novel or have you 
have you brought it back from the disappointment by putting it into this form? I, I, the disappointment of the failed film, I guess. Uh, it, it feels to me that I directed a film in a novel with Sweet Thing, and that's what I wanted to do was direct a film, and it, it felt like you lived your fantasy. Yeah, I lived. <laughs> I, I, I create. Yes, it's. And it is incredibly filmic, that whole, I mean, you've got the soundtrack. And after this interview, I want everyone to go and listen to Van Morrison's Sweet Thing because, particularly while you're reading the end of the book, because it's it's so evocative. It, 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 I mean, that's a song, you know, that is a song that I, you know, uh, uh, and you, you feel the same way I know about. Uh, I still remember being a, a teenager and an older friend sitting me down and playing the Astral Works going, you got to listen to this and just sobbing. You know that that those uh, those wonderful moments when you 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 are touched by the beauty of art. That, that and that I've, I've, sweet thing is uh, it just felt right as the title because that was what came first. The final scene, which was like the final scene of the film, which I write in the book, was. A family, a man and a woman who really love each other, their 19-year-old son driving back from the airport where they've picked him up and Van Morrison's son comes on the radio and he starts crying. And that, that's... And you had that already. Oh, that, that's been there for over 12 years in my life. Hey, I'm, I'm very... Thank you so much, Ange. I love you. <laughs> thank you for taking me through this. Thank you, everyone. Um, I just want to say really quickly, because it's a kind of... It is a launch. There'll be time for celebration. It's not the time, uh, unfortunately, but it feels like a celebration being here with you tonight. We're going to go off and drink. Um, <laughs> I just want to say a big uh, thank you to everyone at Readings. Um, the support you give us writers is just, um, um, we're just so grateful. I want to say a big, 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 big loving thank you to everyone at our Alan and Un Unwin uh, every, every you know, for, for supporting me for so long. Jane Paul Freeman, I love you. The actual launch will be when I can hug you tight and get and drink together, whatever city, whatever town that happens. Um, and thank you to uh, my family, thank you to my friends, and thank you to the most wonderful man in the world, Wayne Vanderstel. I love you very much. Thank you so much, everyone. You can stream previous episodes of the Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded.